0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that is, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, and we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, You do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Oh, good morning, everyone. My name's Gordon. I'm the Assistant Minister here. special welcome to you if you're new or visiting. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, now, the other day, my wife Leanne and I, we watched uh, this movie. It's called Uncle Drew. Has anyone seen this movie? It's on Netflix. Uh, it's, it's a really, really funny movie. Uh, it's about these 70-year-old guys who used to be really good at basketball. And then they re-enter this street basketball tournament and play against all these young young guys. And look, it was, it was entertaining, it was an entertaining night. And uh, look, it did make me want to shoot some hoops the next day, you know, the, the ring at the back of church, but I couldn't find the ball. And so that didn't happen either. Um, and look, it kind of made me dream a little bit about when I'm old, you know, playing street soccer against people who are a quarter of my age. And that was the extent to which this movie influenced my life. Uh, Did it change my life? Not not at all. I wonder what was the last movie you watched. And did watching that movie did that turn your life upside down? Probably not, right? I suspect. See, many people have that approach to the gospel. Uh, the, The gospel is a story, it's the story of the Bible, of Jesus. But stories, you know, like most movies, they don't really change your life that much, do they? It might be interesting, it might be an interesting and entertaining story. At best, a story might inspire you. But that's about it, right? And many people would say that that's all the gospel should do as well. And in one sense, you can kind of get where they're coming from. You know, the gospel, it's not a set of rules, it's not a code of ethics to live Why? It's a story. It's a true story about historical events, but it's still a story, isn't it? An interesting story? Thought-provoking story, maybe? At best, it's a story that inspires me to do something, but that's about it. That's all the change that it should have on my life. Well, friends, our passage today in 1 Thessalonians 4, it really challenges this way of thinking about the gospel. It says, no, you can't. Have that view of the gospel. You can't. And friends, as I was looking at this passage this week, I I was really challenged. Because the passage shows us that the gospel is more than just a story, even a true story, about past historical events. It's more than that. It's something that demands our whole lives be changed, radically changed. Changed to live for the God we have a relationship with, a relationship that's only possible through the gospel. Friends, it's a hard passage. I'm sure you felt it when we read it. And I don't think it's a hard passage to understand, but it's a hard passage to do. It's not hard for our heads, but for our hearts, and for our hands and our feet, and as Pippi demonstrated, our whole bodies. Uh, So let's ask God for help. Uh, Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the Bible and that you speak to us through the Bible. Lord, help us as we look at this tricky passage this morning. For us who are prone to go our own way, uh, challenge us by the lordship of Christ. And for us who are prone to feel the weight of our guilt, comfort us by the blood of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, So keep your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you're following uh, my outline in the booklet, we're at point 1. An encouragement to live a life that pleases the Lord. So look with me to verse one. Uh, Now, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Uh, This whole passage that we're looking at this morning—it actually comes under this: how to live in order to please God, how to live a life. This is an encouragement to live and to keep living a life that pleases God. And, but before we unpack this, I want to ask, why doesn't Paul start his letter of 1 Thessalonians with chapter 4? And why does Paul spend three chapters, which we've already looked at in the last couple of weeks, uh, three chapters explaining what has happened to the Thessalonians? So here's a breakup of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, chapter, chapters 1 to 3. It's generally in the past tense. You know, this is what has happened to you, Paul's saying. This is how you received the gospel from us, uh, from Paul, from me, from Silas, from Timothy. Chapter 4 onwards, though, it's primarily going to be in the present tense or the future tense. This is how to live a life that pleases the Lord in light of the future. So why doesn't Paul just lead with chapter 4? You know, this is what I want you to do. Now, this is really important. See, Christianity, it is concerned about moral behavior, you know, doing good works, but only as a response to receiving the gospel. The Thessalonians, they didn't receive the gospel from Paul because you know, they were doing really good things. They received the gospel first, and then it changed them. And it's because... The gospel isn't just a story about Jesus dying on the cross and coming back from the dead. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also a declaration that Jesus is Lord. The one who was crucified, the one who's risen, the one who lives, this one is Lord. I just noticed how the word Lord is used here with Jesus. In verse 1, at the end of verse 1, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Friends, this isn't just one Thessalonians. This this is the whole New Testament. See, when we receive the gospel and believe in it, we say to Jesus, You are my Lord. My life belongs to you. You're in charge of me. You you know this. You know this. And Paul knows that the Thessalonians know this too. That's why he says in verse 1, You're already living like this. See, this is an encouragement for them to do this more and more, Verse one. But my point is, the Christian life is directed towards pleasing the Lord. And so the question that we need to ask is, how do I please the Lord? You know, what does God want from me? What, what is God's will for me? And often when we ask this question, what's God's will for me, we think, oh, you know, what, God, what job, what career does God want me to do? Or maybe what ministry should I serve in? And look, we should seek God's will for these decisions. But have a look with me at verse 3. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. This is God's will. Your holiness, your sanctification, it's the same word, that you and I are holy. That's what God wants from us. Set apart for him. That's what the word sanctification means. Now, in the rest of this passage, uh, Paul will bring up two areas. uh, Two areas where the Thessalonians need to please God and live a life of holiness. So firstly, it's the area of how to live and not be lazy. That's at the end of the passage. And secondly, it's the area of sex. And you can see this in the outline. But a question first for you, for us. Aren't we already sanctified? Doesn't the Bible already call us saints? Saints. We are. We are saints. We are made holy by the cross. We are already holy and sanctified because we're united with Christ, who is holy. Um, Pippi talked about that before. But sanctification is also God's ongoing work within us, as Pippi demonstrated, to make us more like Christ. And so, imagine that you and your life is like a house. See, when you become a Christian, you effectively said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, Lord Jesus, here are the keys to my house, my life. It's yours now. My life belongs to you now. And at that point, when you hand over the keys of your life to Jesus, you're sanctified because your life now belongs to Christ. It's set apart for him. It's his house now. It's got his name to it. But Jesus also says to us, look, I'm going to renovate your house. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to have to change your life. And that's the ongoing work of sanctification that Paul is talking about here. And most of us go at this point, look, thanks, Jesus. You know, that will actually be really helpful for you. You know, um, my basement, it's a bit of a mess. I really don't know what to do. Can you start with the basement? Uh, But Jesus goes, actually, I need to renovate not just the basement, but your whole house. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, how about the basement? Because it is a mess and I don't know what to do with it. And I guess the kitchen could do with some improvements. Um, and maybe also the backyard as well. But, you know, the rest of the house, I think it's, I think it's all right. Now, what's, what's the comfort in this illustration? Well, the comfort is that God actually has a plan for you and for your life. You know, he has a will for you. And look, it's probably much better than anything, any plan that you could think of for your life. Now, that's the comfort in this illustration But what's uncomfortable about this? is that you need to hand over control of your life to him. You need to let him change parts of your life that you might not want to be changed. And perhaps the hardest room in the house to let go of is your bedroom. The hardest part of your life to let God change might be in the area of sex. Now this is actually an outrageous thing to say in our world, right? Our world says what we do in our bedroom, that's nobody's business. Who are you to tell me who I can't sleep with? That's the spirit of the world that we live in. And yet, you see, this is exactly what Paul does in this this passage. I think Paul picks this topic of sex not because this church has done something really bad in this area, but because the culture in which they were a part of was so heavily sexualized, just like us here in Sydney. And so in this passage, Paul gives three instructions. Now, the first is to avoid sexual immorality, verse 3. Not sex itself, but avoid sexual immorality. See, The Bible's view on sex is that it's a gift from God all the way back in creation. Sex came before we sinned. It's a gift that we, he gave us to be enjoyed in marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman. It's very clear in the Bible and from Jesus too. Anything... Outside of this use of sex in marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. And Jesus not only affirms this in his own teaching, but he actually takes it to the next level, to the the real level. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus condemns not just adultery, but adultery of the heart. And he says: if you look at someone lustfully, someone that you're not married to, if you look at them with sexual desire and intent, then you've committed adultery in your heart. That's what Jesus says. And so Paul's encouragement here to this church is avoid this. Avoid it. Flee sexual immorality. Run away. See, it's much easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. It's much easier in this area of sex to avoid getting into situations where you might be tempted to sin sexually than to resist sexual temptation, when you're right in it. Uh, So that's the first instruction. Uh, The second instruction, he says, control your own body. Look at verse 4. He says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. Friends, again, this is so at odds with the narrative of our world. Our world says That your body should control you. That you should follow your natural desires, your body's urges. And if you don't, then you're not being true to yourself. If you don't do that, you're not being authentic. That's what the world says. It's because the world says that your sexuality is your identity. But you see that the Bible says the opposite. Paul says we must control our bodies, not the other way around. And it's because, if you see in verse 5, he hints it's because we know God. We know God in a way that others don't. The world doesn't. That's our true identity. thirdly, he says don't take advantage or wrong others, particularly your brother or sister in Christ. And I don't think he's just talking about abuse here. See, all sexual sins they actually wrong someone else. And I think this is the whole problem with the you know what I do in my bedroom is nobody's business. Uh, think about adultery. You know, isn't there someone else who's not in the bedroom that is wronged? Think about pornography. There's a whole industry here that takes advantage of some of the most vulnerable people in our world. And so here are the three instructions that Paul gives. But he also gives us three reasons in this passage. And the first is a is a future reason. God will judge. He reminds us in verse 6. There will be justice against those who have taken advantage of others in this area of sex. Paul's reminding that this kind of behavior doesn't belong to the people of God. It's the behavior of those who don't know God, who are destined for his judgment. The second second reason he gives is a past reason. Look at verse 7 with me. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. You know that each of us have been called by God. Did you know that? It's such a privilege. What a privilege. And you know that this has already happened. It's in the past. See, you don't sort out your life, and then when it's at a good enough level for God, He will then call you to be His disciple. No, He calls you first. He calls you first to be a disciple of Jesus. But what does He call us to do? What does God want from us in verse 7? God's plan for us is to live a holy life. That's what God wants for you. The third reason is that God gives us his spirit in verse 8. See, the one who's giving us these instructions, the one who's demanding, I guess, the most personal thing from our lives is also the one who lives in us by his spirit. See, God's not renovating your house so that he can win the block. God wants to live with you. In, the, in this house, God wants to live with you by His Spirit. And the Spirit of God is living in us. So it's not like God uh, wants to live with you in the future, and so He's renovating your house so it's good enough for Him to live with you in the future. No, it's in the present, do you see? God is already living in you, dwelling in you by His Spirit right now. He wants to live with you in your messy, broken house right now. And He wants to work with you to renovate it, to change it, to make it better. And friends, this is the work of the Spirit, God's Spirit dwelling in us, sanctifying us. I want want you to notice also the word learn in verse 4. Now each of you learn how to control your own body. See, it's it's a learning process. It's a process. And as I reflect on my own life, it's a story of God's Spirit patiently teaching me to control my body, to avoid sexual immorality, uh, even through many failures of my own in this area. And no doubt, this church in Thessalonica that Paul writing to here would have had people that are struggling deeply with sexual immorality. And no doubt, there would have been people in this church that Paul's writing to with past regrets in this area. And no doubt, there would have been people in this church that are not directly struggling in this area at all. It's just like our church. Before we move on, friends, I'd like to stop and pray for us as we digest this heavy word. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and gracious. You know our struggles and you see our failings. Help us to be holy, Lord. For us who have sinned in this area of sex in the past, we're sorry, Lord, and confess our sins. Remind us of your forgiveness to us in Jesus, that even on that final day, When we stand before you, and we might even regret some of the things that we've done in the past. On that day, Lord, your mercy to us in Christ Jesus, who washes us clean, will shine even greater. In his name we pray. Amen. So let's move on. Uh, If this area of sexual immorality uh, was a potential danger because of the culture in which this church was in, uh, then the next two areas that Paul talks about here, I think, he mentions them for some different reasons. Uh, So look with me at verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Verse 10. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. What an encouragement. Uh, What an encouragement. Here's a church that's doing really well in loving each other. And so Paul really doesn't have much to say. He says, keep going. You know, do this more and more. Do this more and more. And then he gives them another area to work on. And so this is verse 11. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul goes a little bit harder on them in this area. And so we can assume that this is probably an area that this church was struggling with. Um, But what does he mean, lead a quiet life? Verse 11 goes on. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. See, quiet doesn't mean silent here. It's not being silent. Quiet is more to do with living at peace with others, with the society. Not disrupting the social harmony, not being a busybody, but working honestly and contributing to society. Why? In verse 12, he says so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. See, making the gospel attractive to others, it's not about being the smartest person or the most successful person in the room. It's not about what you do for work so much. It's more about how you're working. See, when you're honest and hardworking and loyal and kind, that's what actually wins the respect of outsiders that's what makes the gospel attractive, more than you know how successful you are in your career. And Friends, this is the picture of the Christian life that we should aspire to. Now, um, is being financially dependent, is that a bad thing? Well it is, if it's because you're being lazy. It is if you're capable of working but you don't. And you're not trying to. Now, in the other letters that Paul writes in the New Testament to the other churches, Paul does ask for money. And the picture of the early church, remember, is that everyone shares and gives to each other out of generosity. But in Thessalonians, Paul, it's really interesting, he, doesn't, he chooses not to ask this church for money. And in the second letter to them, in two Thessalonians, we see that many of them who should have been working and could have been working were being lazy and idle. You know, these were people who couldn't earn money because of illness or disability or age or because they were bearing children. They were just being lazy and idle. Uh, I remember uh, when I was studying at uni, and there was a bunch of people who, at that time, either they all became Christian or they were really they experienced a real rejuvenation in their faith. and It was really um, awesome to see they did that through the uni Christian group. Except they kind of misunderstood a little bit. You know, how this new faith of theirs should have been lived out. Because they kind of had this attitude where, you know, Jesus, Jesus is all that I need. Uh, this world sucks. Heaven's going to be so awesome. And so I can just bum around the quad and do nothing and not go to class. And so these guys, they were always in the quad, uh, skipping class, uh, lazing around, playing cards, that kind of thing, right? And come exam time, uh, they're hounding their their non-Christian classmates to help them catch up on a whole semester of classes that they've missed. That's not what God wants from us. That doesn't win the respect of others. This doesn't make the gospel attractive. Friends, there's quite an interesting balance in this whole passage. Remember, uh, this whole passage is about how to live a life that pleases the Lord. See, this is the world. And in the area of sex, God calls us to be different, to be holy, to be set apart. And so we're to avoid sexual immorality. We're not to assimilate with our world, but we're to be different. And so, see, we're a different color. We're the color of gold, glorious, because we're in Christ. At the same time, God doesn't call us to completely isolate ourselves from the world and from society either. We're not to be our own Christian ghetto or bubble. No, God wants us to be amongst, to work and to live amongst our world, to love and to bless them. And wasn't that the example of Jesus himself? Our Lord Jesus, he was was holy and he was pure as he lived in the world. But he wasn't isolated, was he? He wasn't isolated from people. He wasn't isolated from sinners. So brothers and sisters, let's... Imitate our Lord and let's follow His word on this because remember, He is our Lord. He is our Lord, the one who gave His life for us and is working in us by His Spirit. Now, we're going to sing When I Survey now. And the last line of this song says, Love so amazing and so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Lord God, Your kindness and love to us is so undeserving that you would give your Son to redeem us, that you would give your Spirit to dwell in us. It demands our lives and all that we have. And Lord, help us to do this. Sanctify us and our whole lives so that every part of our life is an offering pleasing to you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.